tuning in with Care Asia, bringing human stories to life. Welcome to another episode of Tuning In with KR Asia. I'm your host, AJ Cortese. In this episode, we are delighted to have Seth Godin with us to discuss the future of education in a post-COVID-19 world, along with the role of technology in civil society. Seth is an entrepreneur, best-selling author, and speaker, and in 2015, he designed and launched the Alt-MBA, an intensive four-week online workshop for high-performing individuals who want to level up and lead. Thanks so much for joining us for this. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. First thing I want to start off and talk about something that you've uh, spoken about extensively, which is kind of the future of education. Now, you launched your Alt-MBA back in 2015, long before the COVID pandemic was even really a reality. But I want to know from you how you think the pandemic will alter the future of education, especially in the U.S. Well, I think we need to differentiate between education and learning. Education serves a powerful sorting function worldwide, United States, Asia, everywhere, because it creates scarcity. It says, here's a group of people who could afford to spend the time and the money to get a certificate, who could sit still long enough to work their way through the assignments. So education is about compliance. Education is about trading your time and energy for a certificate. And that's not the same as learning. Learning is voluntary. Learning is what happens when we willingly become incompetent on our way to getting better at something. So I think online learning offers an extraordinary future for people, but I think we got to be really honest that it's not the same as online education. Mm -hmm. Now, when you say online learning can be beneficial, there are obviously lots of challenges to adopting widespread online learning, access to sufficient technology and internet. How do you think that online learning can kind of transcend some of these challenges as we transition in the years to come? So universal education is super important. I'm a big fan of public school. I'm a big fan of the culture being in sync. But let's be really clear that Stanford Business School has graduated fewer people in the last five years than the Alt-MBA has. And we've had people in 78 countries that there is more availability, more access to this internet thing than real live education has ever offered. We're talking about 2 billion people would have no trouble whatsoever accessing things like Wikipedia or the Khan Academy. So yes, we have a way to go before we can call it universal, but it is so many orders of magnitude bigger than the number of people who can access education that's based on scarcity that I don't think there's any comparison. So let's talk a little bit about what the fallout and the results are going to be for these traditional institutions of higher education. Focus, like you say, on trading your time and compliance for a certificate. What is the road ahead going to look like for them? Well, the ones that are at the top of the pile, the Harvards and Princetons of the world, are going to do fine because they have a really big endowment and also because their certificate is so valuable. Where we're going to see really significant fallout is the tier below that or below that. These are institutions that only have a couple years worth of expenses in the bank who charge an enormous amount for what they offer because they have gyms and dorms and they're basically running a luxury hotel right next to a place of education slash learning and their degree is of indeterminate value. And so to say to someone, you have to go $200,000 in debt and during a pandemic, risk your life to get this piece of paper that isn't worth nearly as much as what you could learn on your own, I think those places 
are going to go through a massive shift and many of them are going to disappear. So is it safe to assume that that would coincide with a reduction in college enrollment in the next couple of years? Well, some colleges are figuring out how to game the accreditation system. So accreditation exists primarily to create scarcity that they make up a bunch of rules about PhDs and stuff to limit the number of people who can go to a school. But if you're adroit and quick-witted, your university can get accredited by a different group. And suddenly, instead of graduating 1,000 people, you can graduate 10,000 people because you're doing it online as well. And mm -hmm. as we see accreditation standards lower in terms of permitting online learning, we're also going to see that that scarce diploma in the short run is worth more because more people know about it. And in the long run, it's probably worth less because these things are all based on scarcity. Mm -hmm. I want to shift for a second to talk about, you know, we're talking about the learners in the new environments. What kind of adjustments are required on the part of the educator, the professor, the teacher to adapt to kind of a new reality with a higher proliferation of online learning? Love this question, AJ. So again, teachers are different than professors. Professors on tenure track or who have tenure are primarily accredited researchers more than they are judged on their ability to teach. Teaching is either based on authority, management, compliance, or it's based on voluntary enrollment and engagement. And what we've seen in the pandemic is a real problem for many teachers because they want butts and seats and pencils on paper to prove compliance, but they're not actually teaching anything because they haven't earned the emotional connection of the people they're seeking to teach. And this gulf feels very real to me. And having seen lots of people work their way through high school and college, my favorite story is uh, we were talking to a young man, he's about 20, and he was laughing at the fact that at the very, very expensive liberal arts college he goes to, they were teaching Spanish class in Zoom. And what the teacher would do is teach for five minutes and then put them into breakout rooms for 10 minutes, breakout rooms of five people where they were supposed to speak to each other in Spanish. And he thought it was hysterical that in their breakout rooms, they just talked about sports in English. Boy, was she an idiot. Well, no, actually, he was an idiot. He was an idiot because he was paying tens of thousands of dollars of his parents' hard-earned money to sit in a Zoom room, sneaking around, talking about sports. He wasn't learning what he was paying to learn. He was paying, actually, for the certificate. And that teacher was letting her students down, but they were letting her down as well because no one there was actually focused on learning Spanish. That makes sense. And I mean, this is going to be one of the biggest challenges, I, I suppose, about online education is you have, I guess, student delinquency, for lack of a better term. I guess it's easier for students to tune out and the level of engagement, at least for students who have grown up learning school classrooms, that's going to require a adjustment on both sides to make this work, it seems. Yeah, I mean, I can visualize a compliance-based regime using combinations of AI, GPT-3, and live intervention in which we say to a student, you have to be in this digital room until you pass this test. And it could take 10 minutes or it could take four hours. Go ahead. And just keep trying and trying. And every time you get it wrong, a, a videotape will teach you a new lesson. And at the end of however long it took, 
you can now demonstrate that you know how to do a fraction or that you know which general did what in which war. If we're going for compliance, that's the way to do it. It doesn't make any sense to do it in sync in real time. Mm -hmm. Right. So that would require an upgrade of the current software systems we're using for online education. That's right. But with a trillion dollars of money to spend to make that happen, there's nothing in the tech that can't be done right now. Yeah, that makes sense. So I want to kind of talk about another aspect of education, especially um, among younger students is, you know, schools for a lot of people are also a source of childcare. Now, online education has really muddied the lines between active childcare at home versus childcare at schools. What do you think, or how can we adjust to make online learning fit in a world with childcare needs? This is brilliant, a brilliant question. And clearly, we you know, we invented public school so that we could train kids to become factory workers. And a lot of nefarious folks were involved in this, including the Ku Klux Klan, because they saw that getting kids out of factories gave them more jobs. But leaving that aside, one of the side effects was that it permitted moms to work outside the home because from nine o'clock to three o'clock, they were, quote, off duty, unquote. And now we're saying Mm -hmm. you need to be back on duty, but we've built our economy on the idea of two people working outside the home. So you've just put your finger on a significant societal problem. You know, the pandemic isn't going to last forever, but while it's lasting, we can't even put people into pods where they're together. One of the post-pandemic bright spots, I think, is a group called the Acton Academy. And what Acton has figured out how to do is build small schools with 40 or 50 people in them that only have two adults running the entire place. And the entire model of the school is that adults don't give you any instructions. You figure out what projects you want to do. You teach other kids. Other kids teach you. And the outcomes are extraordinary. Kids are fully enrolled in self-directed project-based learning. But as you pointed out, it doesn't work if you can't get 45 kids to go to the same building. And I think it's going to take, you know, six months before we get to the point where we're we're grouping up again. So the next six months are going to be a massive disruption. But after that, I think we're going to see computer augmented learning showing up in traditional places where kids come together. Mm -hmm. I like that. I want to transition for a second. We've spoken a lot about the different ways that online learning can enhance our experience as learners, as students. I want to know, especially when it comes to the college experience in the U.S., do you think that there are any sort of intangibles that we'll be missing out on as a result of not doing the traditional in-person education? Do you think that there are missing pieces that perhaps this generation of college students will not experience that you think are important? Well, I think it's fair to say that if you ask most people who are under 100 years old to describe their college experience, the amount of time they're going to spend talking about what they learned in class is close to zero. That it's what you call the intangibles that are actually the benefit of residential, expensive, scarce college education. That the certificate and the class are the excuse for community living homecoming games, finding your way in the world. It's basically four years to grow up away from home before you have to make decisions about who you want to be as a human. And 
I think we can simulate all of those things with better side effects without the overhead that an accredited college brings with it. I could see putting groups together of 10 or 12 people and having them go off for a year to build a thing, to create a thing, do community-based project work that actually benefits the community. Because in that time together and away, they will grow up even more. The outcomes will be even more direct and the experiences will be far more memorable. That's interesting. I want to ask one more question on education before we kind of transition topics. So one of the strengths of the U.S. education system has been its ability to attract international students and foreign talents from across the world. Do you think that given the proliferation of online learning, the current obviously pandemic travel restrictions, but do you think that will in the years to come lessen the demand for international students coming to the U.S.? Yeah, this is a really important idea, and I'm glad you're bringing it up, that one of the things that contributed to the cultural hegemony of the United States for 50 years is that the elites from other countries came here during their formative four years to understand our culture and to build connections with people from the United States and from other countries. That you know, call it Pax Americana, 50 years of people leading every country going through that has rarely been addressed and is really important in terms of the world hanging together. And it's going away, partly because of our current leadership, partly because of the pandemic, partly because of the shift in what and how people are learning. And I don't see a lot of good outcomes coming from that. I think that we benefit as a planet when people are in sync and we could be in sync around a different thing, but I don't see the different things showing up for us to be in sync around. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you, Seth. All right. So now I'm going to transition on to our second topic for today. And we're going to talk a bit about technology and civil engagement and civil society. So I guess to start things off, the election's coming up in a couple months, and there's been a lot of debate on the logistic efficiency of mail-in voting. Obviously, with the pandemic, this is really a necessity for a lot of voters. And it strikes me as sort of a digital native, how we haven't leveraged some sort of technology to circumvent this key pain point in the election process. So I guess what my question is, how do you think we can use technology to help people engage in civil society more and solve pain points to create a more active political body. Okay, so we need to be clear about the first part, which is this. We don't have a voting integrity problem. However, there are people who want folks to believe we do. There are people who want folks to not accept the results of an election. If, if you're a foreign power, this is a big win. If you can cast doubt, on election integrity, because the reasons that elections work in a democracy is because people believe them. So you don't have to actually hack the election. You simply have to get people to believe that the election results aren't legit for the elections to stop working. So I think it's really important we begin any conversation about this by saying, can we make it 1% better? Yeah. Do we need to? No, except to the extent that we want to do a good job. What we need to do is make it really clear to people that so many other elements of their life that they rely on, like driving a car to the supermarket or getting on an airplane, are way riskier 
than an American election. But we're not sitting here having debates about whether people should drive or not. We're just having a debate about this because technology at large scale is scary to people. Now, there are lots of ways to create verifiable, auditable trail, open source digital election systems. And there are members of the status quo that have fought those for two decades, but technically not that hard a problem to solve. And the thing that comes with it, which I made a podcast about a couple of weeks ago, is I think this is our opportunity to also put in place a different regime for how you run an election, because we're using basically the same thing we've done for 200 years. I would propose ranked choice voting. I would propose instant runoffs. I would propose even experimenting with an election that ran for 30 days and you could change your vote as many times as you wanted. All of these things are technically possible now, and all of them are likely to create more widespread acceptance of the results. Because something like ranked choice voting makes it really unlikely that a candidate who is hated by 60% of the population gets elected. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense for sure. I think that when it comes to creating trust with these digital products and something you know, as sensitive as an election, you mentioned uh, pushback from the status quo, but what do you think are some of the key questions or challenges we have to solve in order to gain people's trust in these digital products? Well, so there are two approaches that appeal to me. The first one is the one that's based on authority, which basically says, if we had an open source system that was auditable, then people who were trusted could audit it and speak up in its defense. But we're also living in a post-trust world. So the other alternative is to make it so that you can actually see your vote. You can see it sitting there in the database anytime you want. And once we can see that our blue marble is sitting in the big pile of blue marbles, it's much easier to believe they didn't lose our vote. And there are plenty of examples of that in the real world. And there's no reason it can't be done here. And we don't have to worry about people losing the anonymity of the vote. Technically, it's not hard to do. The same way you can go to your ATM and see your balance in the bank. You don't even know what that means for you to have a balance in the bank because the money isn't there. There's just a number. But knowing that it's there today, tomorrow, and the next day gives people a lot of peace of mind. So if we thought about it that same way, that a bank can be audited and that every depositor can see their balance is similar to the way you could increase trust in the election. Because the fact is, it's more profitable to steal money from a bank than it is to steal from an election. And people aren't stealing money from banks and people believe in banks because of this emotional audit ability. So I want to kind of expand from the election itself and talk about technology's ability to empower citizens in a more broad manner, including local elections and more localized civic engagement. For example, we see notoriously low political engagement in large swaths of younger voters and perhaps a digital product, say a citizen portal where they could access and actively participate in the many forms of government we have. Do you think that this is something that could and would invigorate younger voters? Or is this something that I think people would still be kind of uninterested in as it's voluntary? You know, I think the key is not to increase voter participation just for its own sake. Voter participation is only important in the sense that if you vote, you feel ownership. And I think one of the reasons you vote 
is because you feel ownership. It goes in both directions. So this is really a symptom. It's a symptom of how have we failed to invite younger people to actively get involved in your community? If you get involved in your community, you're way more likely to vote. So what would it mean for younger people to create the next generation of parks and libraries and schools? What would it mean for them to shift from being itinerant digital nomads to people who say, this is my community and I'm going to volunteer here. I'm going to help at the food bank. I'm going to help with the senior citizens. Because in my experience, people who do those things also vote. Yeah. So Seth, that's kind of most of the questions I've had for this session. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat. Is there any final thoughts on either topic you'd like to offer? I love the insight and the pattern of your questions. I think it was really helpful. It was my pleasure to contribute. Thank you, AJ. I really appreciate it, Seth. Our readers are going to love this and uh, you have a great rest of your day.